I love conference realignment talk, and it's it's been pretty quiet here for a long time. And some people out there, people that know a lot more than I do, think it's going to fire up again in the next decade with some of these media contracts being renewed, being renegotiated. But there is a little bit of it this week, not really realignment talk, but more a little potential movement to monitor. So over the weekend, and this was lost in the shuffle of actual football, Air Force head coach Troy Calhoun said, it might be better for them to leave the Mountain West. He said, and I quote, I just don't know if it's really a match. I don't know if it's best. So my question naturally, just like if we're ever talking about the hot seat, if you want to talk about the hot seat for somebody, the question has to be, who are you going to hire to replace them? So in this case, if Air Force leaves the Mountain West, who replaces them? Geographically, it's a little bit more difficult than replacing a school in the American or the Sun Belt or Conference USA or any of the Power Five leagues. And I guess that geography isn't as much of a limitation as it was back 15, 20, 25 years ago. But again, who would replace Air Force? Assuming that the Mountain West wants to stay at 12, who would replace the Air Force? I don't, I don't see a potential list of suitors that is very big, unless you want to talk FCS, which seems highly unlikely. Although North Dakota State in the Mountain West would be fantastic. Like New Mexico State, maybe? I remember talking with Coach Doug Martin last year, and he was fired up about them not being the Sun Belt anymore, not being tied to that schedule. But the Mountain West, I don't know. I think that they could fit again geographically. It might make a little bit sense. And with all due respect to the Aggies, I don't know that they bring that much to the table. And if it's not them, are you looking at BYU? That will probably be one of the obvious ones. UTEP, UTSA. So that could be kind of interesting. Andrew Doughty here on the High Motor Podcast. This is the midweek episode of the High Motor Podcast, and I will have Brad Crawford of 24-7 Sports. I talked to him uh, earlier in the week, so I'm going to play that. And then after that, per usual, it'll be Chase Kitty with your Week 8 betting preview. New this week, we're going to do a rapid fire with Chase. Touch on, I have 12 games here in a few minutes to get you that info very quickly. Andrew Doughty, Brad Crawford, Chase Kitty on the High Motor Podcast for Week 8. Brad Crawford of 24-7 Sports and host of the First in Line Podcast. Brad, you've spent a lot of time around that South Carolina program over the years, and after a win like that over Georgia on Saturday, does it does it change anything long-term for South Carolina, or is, is Will Muschamp still battling those same mediocrity issues he was before and now he's doing so but just carrying a really nice win the biggest win thus far of his tenure I think it's very key that you said it's the biggest win thus far of his tenure because this is his 15th season and you know he had 11 straight losses to ranked teams before Saturday's unthinkable win in Athens as a you know four touchdown underdog it's a game that really no Gamecock fans thought South Carolina was going to win no national analysts like myself thought the Gamecocks were going to win. Only those players inside that locker room and that staff and Will Muschamp and, and Ray Tanner, the Gamecock AD, who has publicly said throughout this season, despite the rocky start here in year five, that he is fully behind Muschamp. And I really believe that. Um, you know, the, the Gamecocks, watching that game yesterday, man, it, it seemed like, you know, they were playing with their backs against the wall. And that that can't always be said against top five teams during Muschamp's tenure thus far. Sometimes South Carolina just uh, comes out out of the gates really slow against elite competition, and, and it shows. But yesterday they, they proved they were a game, and I think moving forward, Muschamp right now is signed through 2021. You know, he has that real expensive buyout, and 
heading into yesterday. It was, it was probably a glass half empty approach, but after that win, things have certainly changed a little bit heading into next weekend's game against Florida. How much do you do you buy into it? When a win like this happens, I kind of go back to, um, you know, like when Purdue beat Ohio State uh, last year, when uh, when Syracuse beat Clemson. You talk about a lot about what this means for the program. I know a lot of people within the South Carolina program have already said that over the last what eighteen twenty four hours already. How much do you buy into this? Do you really feel like this is a win that? finally moves them forward, kind of gets them back, not back into that 11-win conversation like they were uh, a while back under Spurrier, but does it at least move them forward, or is it kind of just a win? Yeah, you know, in college football, we always put so much heavy emphasis week to week. I mean, after the opening loss to North Carolina, I'd say 80% of the fan base was ready to rid itself of Muschamp. Two weeks later, had the Gamecocks upset top-ranked Alabama, then they would have been back on the Muschamp extension wagon. But, you know, that that's just not in Columbia. That's everywhere nationwide when you're not talking about those five or six programs who are in the mix every year. You know, every everybody's chasing the Alabamas and the Clemsons and the Oklahomas of the world, and South Carolina is, you know, one of those mid-tier programs, borderline top 25 every year that, you know, has to have some of those quality wins to prove it. But moving on with Muschamp, I think that, it's a win that certainly puts South Carolina in the bowl picture this season. I think if you asked me that same question a few weeks ago, I'd have probably said the Gamecocks would be 4-8, and eight, and that certainly has changed now with you know, some winnable games coming up, Tennessee, Vanderbilt, App State. So it really depends on how South Carolina uses this win over Georgia as maybe a catapult, for instance, to bigger and better things this season. I think Muschamp, you know, he's, he's excited after that win, but maybe – uh, cautiously optimistic because you know Florida coming into Williams Bryce next weekend as you know SEC week to week is a meat grinder and South Carolina could easily lose that game and any momentum it had after beating Kirby Smart's Bulldogs. And then the other side, what that loss means for Georgia, obviously everyone can see what it means um, in terms of the SEC race. That changed a little bit with Florida's loss. But, you know, for you, did you see that loss to Georgia as, or excuse me, that loss for Georgia? Was it just an ugly loss that if Jake Fromm doesn't have those interceptions, they win that game? Or are you looking at Georgia and saying this is something more, something else is wrong here? Yeah, I think that game for me on Saturday sort of exposed some warts that maybe we didn't know Georgia had based on the early season schedule. No disrespect to Notre Dame, but they don't have the talent up front that South Carolina has with DJ Wonham and Javon Kinlaw. Javon Kinlaw, according to scouts I've spoke to, might be a top 10 pick next year. He's that good. And Kirby Smart will be the first to attest that, you know, he dominated that game snap to snap in Athens. But, you know, moving back to Georgia, Jake Fromm, it's the first time I've seen him in, 40 or so career starts really looked shaken um, on, on one of Georgia's first possessions. Couldn't remember because the first or the second one from kind of hit the ground and Kinlaw fell on top of him. And I think, you know, that was kind of when the game started for the South Carolina, they, they dominated the line of scrimmage. First time Georgia has been whipped up front really in uh, since the Texas sugar bowl game last year. And, and for Kirby smart, I think he knows that this team's backs against the wall. One of the, one of the major issues too, for me is, Georgia has not had a premier receiver step up this year. And I think you saw yesterday when you play a team with athletic corners like the Gamecocks have, you can kind of play man and and lock down Georgia. So if I'm a Georgia fan right now, you know, heading into some games coming up against Florida and Missouri and Auburn and A&M, I mean, that's a a brutal November, man. And they've got to win all four of those games 
just to get to Atlanta to have a shot at the playoffs. So um, I've I've pretty much sold all my stock on Georgia this season as a playoff team, and I think right now Florida is probably the SEC East favorite. So before that Georgia loss, before that Florida loss, obviously the Florida one not nearly as surprising. But before that, a two-bit SEC, uh, it was very easy to see that, like we have seen in previous years, like October and November. It was very easy to see over the first five years of the playoff, the SEC getting two teams into the playoff, and they've done that before. And it looked good again this year. Now that has changed uh, drastically. Do you think those chances are crushed, or do you still like a two-bit SEC? I think those chances have certainly declined. I think for that to happen, you would have needed to see an unbeaten Bama go against an unbeaten Georgia in Atlanta. Maybe Georgia win that game over a top-ranked Crimson Tide team. And then you probably see Alabama fall to three or four in the final rankings before we play those semifinal bouts. But I think now you're looking at maybe LSU having the best shot at reaching the playoff for a team not named Alabama. I, I think Alabama is going to win the SEC finish unbeaten, probably have that number one seed in the playoff. And then you're going to have an 11-1 LSU team with the loss to Alabama trying to fight, you know, one of those other Power Five conference champions. I will say this, you know, LSU certainly would be deserving of a number four seed with that win over Texas, only loss of the year coming to a number one Alabama team. But if Ohio State comes into the playoff 13-0, and you've got Clemson 13-0, and 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 then you've got, you know, the – Oklahoma team that's thirteen and zero, LSU's not getting in. That that's a that's a dream scenario for the selection committee. It'll make the final vote very easy to have four Power Five unbeaten's in those final four slots. So, despite what happened uh, yesterday, Saturday, do do you still think that the SEC, out of all the Power Five leagues, still has the best shot at being a two bid league? Or does that now kind of shift to the Big Ten, for example, where you have a Wisconsin who, in my opinion, kind of has two shots. If Wisconsin takes care of, takes care of business in the West, they kind of have two shots uh, at Ohio State uh, or vice versa. If you think that Wisconsin can beat Ohio State, Ohio State kind of has two shots against Wisconsin to get in as a 12-1 uh, Power 5 champ. But even with what happened to Georgia and Florida, do you still think the SEC has the best chance of being that two-bid league? I think it is. I, I think if Wisconsin were to lose that regular season game, at the end of the month here in October against Ohio State and then beat the Buckeyes in the Big Ten championship game, I think you're going to have maybe a split final vote on LSU at 11-1 and deserves that four seed or is it, or is it Wisconsin. Um, as, as good as Wisconsin has played this year and they, they've beaten Michigan, you know, they, they have the four shutouts. I think five is the program record in 1930 and they might get that coming up with games against Purdue and Illinois, but um, – as good as they've been, I just think, and, and you know, I, I can't get in the heads of, of the Sledge Committee members, but LSU looks the part. It's the sexiest offense in college football next to Oklahoma. And, you know, if, if that team has a loss to Alabama in a 45-42 type epic clash, I still think you're going to see a lot of respect for Ed Ogeron's Tigers. And it'd be very interesting to me that if the Big Ten champion does have one loss, you know, will it get in over LSU? I'm I'm not so sure. You briefly touched on Will Muschamp's job security uh, with Ray Tanner giving that voice of confidence even before that win, and, and now I can't imagine that went down. Of course, it obviously probably went up and. 
I ask you because last week on the show we were talking about how it's it's hard, almost impossible to see a Big 12 coaching change unless somebody really pays up for Matt Campbell, unless Matt Rule's NFL flirtations become something more than that. And, you know, it's still pretty early here, still sitting here week eight, but it seems like the SEC is kind of shaping up in a similar manner, depending on what you think maybe at Vandy if they're willing to pay another buyout after that Bryce Drew buyout. But in regards to the carousel, do you see the SEC carousel spinning at all? Or do you think it will stay in place and every single SEC head coach will be in place next season again? I think we probably will see one change. I'm not sure where that'll be. I don't think it'll be at Auburn. However, Gus Malzahn has proven this season, you know, coming in on the hot seat that, you know, besides that loss in, in Gainesville, Auburn's 5-1 and one and still a top 15 team right now. Still some big games left for them, but I, I think he's safe. I think Derek Mason, even if they finish, you know, 2-10, and 10, and they beat that cupcake they have in November. Uh, he's probably safe. I, I don't I don't know right now who Vanderbilt could hire. That's that's one thing you got to think about too, man. When you're in the business of firing coaches, you've got to have three or four guys lined up to at least you know be ready to interview because then you're in a spot where it's a it's a bad year for free agent coaches and and you can't find anyone. So, but the the one coach in my opinion though who might be on the hottest seat right now. Um, has to be Chad Morris I'm at Arkansas. I, I have not seen his buyout. It's not nearly as high as Will Muschamp's at, I think, $22 million. So So he's safe in Columbia. But uh, Chad Morris just has not shown any progression right now in, in favor of Arkansas with the Razorbacks. You know, he did a good job recruiting this cycle, ha- has a decent class coming in, but, you know, can't find a quarterback, can't find a defense, and despite having – three really good ball carriers, Arkansas is just, just not even beating the uh, not-so-great teams on the schedule. So um, Chad Morris, and, and you can look it up, I still don't think he has a Power 5 win to his credit in his head coaching career. Hey, last thing on that, on that, you didn't mention Matt Luke at Ole Miss with the change in leadership down there. Do you think that his job is in jeopardy at all? I think Ole Miss has showed enough progress so far this season, especially with the new freshman quarterback and they they lost last night on the road to Missouri. Uh, pretty decent game though. If if you watch it, Mizzou had a big lead and Ole Miss kind of cut into it late. You know they they have the offense installed that they want right now. Uh, Matt Luke signing Jerrion Ely, the five star running back, was a real coup this uh, past recruiting cycle. And if if Ole Miss can you know swipe a few guys in the south, maybe get a couple couple more four-star guys on that offense to surround their new quarterback uh you know perhaps is looking up for Matt Lug but you know he's he's kind of on the same level right now as Chad Morris and um I think Luke's trajectory is noticeably more positive than Chad Morris okay that's Brad Crawford of 24-7 Sports on Twitter at bcrawford247 hey Brad thanks for the time uh enjoy the rest of the week and enjoy week eight appreciate it man If you missed Sunday's episode, Chase Kitty, he made his argument that Mizzou should be taken way more seriously as a potential SEC East champion. If you listen to that, you also know that he is not saying that that Mizzou is anywhere near what Florida and Georgia is, but because of their schedule, the argument was kind of interesting. So go back and listen to that if you haven't. That was in the You're Wrong segment, and we talked about grabbing odds on the SEC East champion. For whatever reason, neither him nor I can find it. So... Not seen any of those, but the SEC title odds, so the SEC title in general, Mizzou at plus 
3,300. And Chase, I don't want to spend too much time on this because we already, already talked about Mizzou and their schedule and their chances. But does this kind of fall under the same bucket? Like I had you on before the season started, and we're looking at national title odds. And one of the, I, th- I can't remember who tweeted it out and said, like, dark horses or, or keep an eye on these bets for a national title. And one of the, the teams that this person picked was Utah. And I can't remember what the odds were. And you and I are like, great, if you want to throw $2 on Utah to win six or 700 enjoy yourself. But Utah is not winning the national championship. Mizzou is not winning the SEC. So at plus 3,300, does that fall in that same boat for you? Yeah, uh, it, I think it was Phil Steele, and I think it was like 75 to 1. But you're, you're absolutely right. It's a great comparison. I, I, I'm not interested in Missouri at plus 3,300 to win the SEC. I'm not interested in Missouri at plus 33,000 to win the SEC. Like, Wait, I said we couldn't find the East odds. What would the East odds have to be for you to be interested in that? That's a little different because I feel like it, it's more obtainable. Like It's still sort of a long shot because of those top three teams. They're pretty clearly, in my eyes, the third best team. But the path and the numbers and the advantages they have right now after Georgia and Florida both lost, it feels like they have a shot at it. I think what we're going to have to do if we want to find odds on this is go to one of those books where you can literally request odds on custom bets, and I know those books exist out there. Uh, So I I think that's what you'll have to do if you want to bet this. But if you can get Missouri at like plus 1,500 or plus 2,000 or something, you know, something sort of hefty like that, yeah, I think it's worth a shot. I'd, I'd take a ticket on that. Do you kind of have the same approach to that? I know you do your 2K parlay every week where you put down $5 on like a 15 or 16, 17 team parlay that pays at $2,000, hence a 2K parlay. Do you see it the same way as that? So if you were able to get Mizzou at whatever, you, plus 1500 or something, do you see putting $5 on Mizzou as essentially the same thing? No, not necessarily because this is a more legitimate bet, right? This this has real return. It could really happen. You only need one thing, right? The, the thing about the 2K parlay is you, even on a, on a shorter week, you're talking about hitting 15 bets in one day, and that's just unlikely. With Missouri, I mean, you're talking about a, a half of a conference. Who in, in seven or eight teams is going to win that one half of one conference? I mean, Missouri has a real shot to do that. So I, I look at that as a more legitimate bet that you might want to put half a unit on, whatever your unit is. I've been stewing on something since our last midweek episode last week when I asked you for a conservative parlay, and I can't even remember the other two teams, but Vandy was part of that. That didn't work out. Turns out Vanderbilt just plain sucks. They got steamrolled by UNLV. So that didn't work out. Let's try this again. Conservative parlay. Let's try to hit this one this time. Yeah, and, and before I even get into that, I, I when I was doing research for this podcast uh, earlier today and, and yesterday, I saw there are only two Power 5 teams that are 0-6 against the spread right now this year, and Vanderbilt would be one Wait, of them. Wait, let me guess the other one. Go ahead. Indiana? No. Indiana's actually pretty good against the spread this year. Is that right? Who is it? Wake Four. Um, I'm sorry. Now, whoa. Oh, Freudian slip. Georgia Tech. Oh, see, I, I wasn't sure where to go on that. I, you know, my natural inclination was like Rutgers, but I didn't want to go that far. So I felt like you know, like a second or a third tier crappiness would lead me to an Illinois and Indiana type. No, Georgia Tech. Um, Indiana actually favored in College Park this week. I'm not telling you to bet it, but in fact, I'd probably bet the other way. But still. I feel the uh, same way about that game as I did when it was announced that Illinois and Nebraska will open the 2021 season in Ireland. I thought that was a misprint. 
I'm fine with Nebraska getting it. Their fans travel. I get that. But how many teams did they have to go through until they either got somebody to say yes or Illinois lobbied them like Rutgers did to get into the Big Ten? But anyways, so conservative parlay. Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I like this little this little baby three-team parlay that I put together. It's actually a plus-rated odds. Uh, go back to the well on Virginia. They're at minus 165 against Duke, which I think is a great price coming off of the losses at Miami and Notre Dame. They come back. They're going to play a Duke team that I think is maybe a little overvalued after the Virginia Tech beatdown. Uh, so you got UVA there at minus 165. Cincinnati at home, minus 950 against Tulsa. And Cal... Uh, money line against Oregon State. I like all three of those together, uh, and that is plus 120. So that's pretty good return on, I think, a fairly conservative uh, set of three wins. Great. So everybody put the house down on that. You get the Chase stamp of guarantee after last week's Vanderbilt debacle. Chase, this is something you talk about, and I've been meaning to ask you more about it every week, and I never get to it. You talk a lot about lines that smell fishy lines. First, how do you spot a fishy line if you are not a sharp better? And then second, do you have a couple fishy lines for week eight that you would recommend? And how did you spot those? Well, I think the the easiest way to answer that is if you see a line and you go, wait, what? Or it's like, well, that seems really easy. I, you know, that's usually a fishy line. So like last week, uh, the, the column edge sorting that's up on Hero Sports uh, every Thursday I talked about two fishy lines and how I was actually gonna I was gonna take the fishy side on one and the other side on the other, uh, and the two games were UVA going down to Miami as an underdog off of a bye, and then the other one was it was actually a pro game it was New Orleans as an underdog at Jacksonville, so I, I thought very clearly that Jacksonville was the side to be on there, uh, and of course. That, you know, Gardner Minshew played like garbage, but that's, you know, that's a whole different conversation. Uh, and then UVA, I thought it, you actually wanted to be on their side. I thought they were, uh, Miami was being overvalued with the quarterback change and everything. So I ended up being wrong on both counts. So, you know, <laughs> uh, no, it, it it's a, basically it's a line that you feel like is too easy or doesn't make sense to you. You almost want to lean into what doesn't make sense most of the time. Uh, so I'll give you a couple examples from this upcoming week. Um, the the I thought the number one one that I saw was Wake Forest playing Florida State, and Wake was a two point favorite. Uh, that just screamed Florida State to me. Uh, and, and I think they opened. I think Wake opened as a two and a half. And, and this is something we've talked about in the past too. Is sort of these key numbers like three and seven and ten and, and things like that. Anytime somebody hangs a line at like two and a half, what's the first thing you would think? They're not totally sure of it. The first thing I think a lot of people think is, oh, that's just under three. And they, they know enough to know that a lot of games end at three points or seven points. Well, right? I guess that's my point because, I mean, a game can shift so dramatically, especially with how college overtime works. Like if, if a team kicks a field goal and, and they can't get it or whatever, or if they score and they don't need to kick the extra point, like for example, um, like a, you know, if they have a three-point lead and then they score in overtime, that's kind of how I'm thinking of it, is that a game can shift so dramatically with how the clock stops on first downs. You can go from losing by three to winning by three in a matter of seconds with only a drive that takes like, what, 60 or 70 seconds. Sure. Uh, but but getting back to sort of the psychology of the number, 
I think a lot of people see those numbers, especially sort of public betters or square betters. They see those numbers and go, okay, good. I can get in under the three or under the seven. Give me the two and a half. Give me the six and a half. And that's one of those ways that books try to position themselves on a side. Uh, unsurprisingly, with this uh, this Wake Forest, Florida State bet, Wake Forest opens as a two and a half point favorite. A lot of the public is on Wake Forest, which until last week had been unbeaten. But the line actually goes from two and a half to two. And it's because the pros are on Florida State. And, and this is one of these games that I absolutely love. It's probably going to be in the column. It's Florida State plus two. I think they can win outright, and it's not necessarily because Wake Forest lost last week, so now all of a sudden I don't think they're any good. I think it's more about the fact that Florida State has quietly, you know, after the first couple weeks of the season, they've started to get better. They've fixed some things. I think they're probably one of the top five teams in the ACC now, and I don't think I would have been willing to say that in the first month of the season. So I like Florida State plus the two. I think they have a chance to win outright, and the bonus here is that I know I'm on the sharp side. I know I'm on the side that looks a little fishy, but I'm leaning into that because more often than not, that's going to pay. I want to ask you about FCS, and this is something that we've talked about offline quite a bit. And you've, you've mentioned on the podcast, you've mentioned betting on FCS games, you being an FCS guy. How do people who don't follow it or their extent of FCS following is – I know North Dakota State is damn good. I know James Madison is damn good. And there might be a couple other teams that I recognize every single season. So because you, not even from your perspective, because you're in the weeds on this stuff, but if somebody is looking for an opportunity to win some real money on FCS football, whether or not they're playing, you know, like for example, South Dakota State's at Indiana State this weekend. I think a lot of people have started coming around. Yes, South Dakota State is nowhere near like that national conversation of NDSU, James Madison, etc. But I think a lot of people are starting to recognize that that South Dakota State is a really good, stable program. They should have won at Minnesota. So, I mean, even a game like that or whatever game you want, how can just an average college football fan look at FCS and actually make some real money on it when they don't even know that much about South Dakota State, Indiana State, whoever you want? Well, the number one tip I would give you is get into FCS early in the year because like clockwork every year when, when books which just don't follow FCS football nearly as carefully as they do FBS football. The lines are always soft on JMU and North Dakota State, and you can blind bet those two teams and win almost every week. So that's my number one tip to everybody every year. When does that just, stop? Well, I guess when do, when do the books adjust to that? Probably around the time that we get into conference play. So like this week, North Dakota State is playing Missouri State, which – among FCS hardcore fans is nicknamed Misery State because it's just not a very good program. Uh, they, I think they've, I heard somebody talking earlier this week. They've won like six conference games since 2014 or something like that. So they're just not very good. Uh, it, North Dakota State is a 40 point favorite. So that's kind of, you can't really touch that, right? Like they might cover that, but you can't be laying 40 points in a conference game, even if it's a great program like North Dakota State going up against a crappy one like Missouri State. So by now, there's less value. And in fact, uh, we, switching sort of to the JMU perspective on things, like I'm actually going to bet against JMU this week because they're, they're on the road, they're laying three touchdowns, and I think they're, they're you know, I don't think they're going to lose, but I think they're the team that they're playing, which is William & Mary, sort of an up-and-coming program. They got a new coach. They're trying to go with pace, which is something they haven't done in a while. I think William & Mary can cover the three touchdowns at home. Uh, so I'm actually going against JMU this week, but early in the year, you know, 
I just I whatever the max bet is, I, I bet the max on both of those teams almost every time because the lines are so soft. Is Mike London at William and Mary Knox? Wasn't he at Howard for a couple of years? Isn't he at William and Mary? He is. He he was at Richmond and then he jumped to UVA and then he was at Howard and now he's at William and Mary. I want to do something new to wrap this up in this midweek episode of the High Motor Podcast. I want to do some rapid fire with you. So I have 12 games. Uh, I grabbed them quickly. They, I mean, they seem like the top 12 games of the week. I might be missing a couple. You could swap in and out here. So I'm just going to roll through these. We'll put, I don't know, four or five minutes on the clock. And Chase, I just want you to tell me, are you taking it? Are you passing it? If you want to give an explanation, great. So Clemson, 23-point favorite at Louisville. The total on that game is 62.5. Any interest there? Yes, I'm on the under in this game. Uh, I've tracked the action on the total, and I really like uh, the line movement. I don't want to wait too much longer because it's already gone like down about two or two and a half points, but I do like the under here. West Virginia at Oklahoma. Oklahoma, 33 and a half points, what I'm seeing right now. Total on that game, 65 and a half. This is one of my favorite bets of the week. I am saying this as a known West Virginia fan. You should be betting a lot of money on Oklahoma this week. Florida, five-and-a-half point favorite going to Columbia, uh, South Carolina. South Carolina coming off of that Georgia win. So Florida, five-and-a-half at South Carolina. The total is under 50. I'm seeing 48-and-a-half. Yeah, I think the side to be on here is probably Florida. I don't think I'm going to bet this game, but if you made me, South Carolina coming off of a big win, Florida coming off of a loss, that points toward the value being on Florida for multiple reasons. I would get, I bet the Gators if I had to, but I don't think I'll end up taking a side on this. Oregon at Washington. Right now, Oregon three-point favorite. The total right around 50 at 50 and a half. This feels like I would lean toward Oregon just because I don't think Washington's been super impressive this year, but... You know, Chris Peterson is such a good coach. In a big game spot like this, I wouldn't be surprised if the Huskies get the upset. So it's probably a stay away from me. couple more Big 12 games. First, Baylor at Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State, three-and-a-half point favorite against undefeated Baylor Bears. The total on that game, 64-and-a-half. Yeah, this is a little fishy for me uh, because, you know, we were just— we were just talking about lines, fishy-sounded lines, right? And Baylor, which is undefeated in the Big 12, is getting three points plus the hook on the road at Oklahoma State. It feels like this is a spot where the book wants you to bet Baylor, which makes me lean towards Oklahoma State. Uh, I think I might also lean on the under, but this is one of those games where if it ends up being 45-42, I wouldn't be shocked. So... Uh, give me Oklahoma State minus three and a half with a gun to my head, but this is a stay away. The other Big 12 game, the last one of these 12 games for you, uh, Iowa State is going to Lubbock. Iowa State coming off that blowout win as West Virginia. Texas Tech went and played a nice overtime game against Baylor. So Iowa State, seven-point favorite uh, at Texas Tech. The total there is 56.5. I don't think Texas Tech is all that good, but they have been really impressive the last couple weeks, even if they haven't necessarily come away with wins in both games. Iowa State... Big win at West Virginia, big win over TCU. I feel like this line is a little bit inflated, so I think Texas Tech plus seven at home is a pretty solid play. Back to the Pac-12, Arizona State at Utah. Arizona State playing pretty well, but Utah is a 13.5 point favorite in a game with a total that's under 50. So Utah minus 13.5, the total that I'm seeing right now. And just for reference, we're recording this on Tuesday night, so all these numbers may vary a little bit from what you're seeing later in the week. Arizona State at Utah. Utah, 13.5-point favorite. The total on that, 48.5. Arizona State plus 13.5, one of my favorite plays of the week. Uh, they've been really good against the spread this year. 
Uh, they're really good on the road this year. They got the win in East Lansing. I think Arizona State has a chance to win this game outright. So catching almost two touchdowns is an awesome number to have. And what were we just talking about with the key numbers and the numbers right below those? 14 is two full touchdowns. 13 and a half, a lot of betters are going to look at that. A lot of square betters are going to look at that and think, oh, good, I can come in right under the two-touchdown number. That kind of makes me like Arizona State even more. Georgia, another huge home favorite uh, against an SEC East team. Kentucky at Georgia. Georgia, 25-point favorite. And the total of that game is only 48. What do you got there? Uh, On principle, because of the numbers, I would probably take Kentucky plus all the points. But this is a stay away from me just because I'm not quite sure what to do with Georgia right now. Maybe the biggest game of the week or the most notable game of the week, Michigan at Penn State. Penn State is a nine-point favorite at home. The total on that game is 45. Yeah, this is uh, this is an interesting one. I think I might be inclined to like the over just a little bit. I haven't looked at this game a ton yet, but the over looks interesting to me. I, I think Michigan is going to have to keep up with Penn State. I don't quite know what to do with the spread yet, but maybe a slight lean to the over. Let's go to the G5 for the last three I have. Boise State, 6.5-point favorite at BYU. The total on that game, 50. Uh, I really like Boise State to cover the spread here. I just think they're on a different level than a lot of these other G5 teams. And, And BYU is solid. But Boise State to win by a touchdown, even on the road, I don't think is all that far-fetched. The last two, both in the American, a lot of teams that we've talked about a pretty good amount this season on the podcast. First, Temple at SMU. SMU is a a 7.5-point favorite. Temple coming off of that win uh, against Memphis where they got that very friendly review call in their favor. SMU, 7.5 points at home. The total on that game, 59. This seems like too many points, which makes me kind of like Temple. it just feels like these teams are closer than a touchdown, but this is probably a pass for me. In the last game here, Willie Fritz and Tulane going to Memphis. Again, Memphis coming off of that first loss of the season up in Philadelphia. Memphis a four-point favorite at home against a really damn good Tulane team that's meet some pretty decent uh, G5 teams this year, although after Army's loss to Western Kentucky, we're not really sure what to think of Army. Anyways, Tulane at Memphis. Memphis a four-point favorite. The total right now is 59 and a half. Yeah, so right off the bat, Tulane has is tied for having the best record against the spread of all 130 college football teams in, in FBS this year. So Tulane plus four is probably the side to be on here. I like the over. This seems way too low to me. We know there's going to be points scored. Memphis throws the ball, and, and the, the offense there is just crazy. Tulane, you know they're going to be able to keep up. Be, you know, It's not quite the Big 12-esque offense that Memphis runs. But it is a really strong and dynamic uh, offense that Willie Fritz has there. So I, I'm, I don't really know why this number is so low. It makes me like the over. Uh, I have that penned down as a potential uh, column bet this week. So, yeah, give me the over, and if you want a side, I'd take 20 plus the points. Really quickly before we went, you talked about a couple of those that you loved a lot. I mean, you just mentioned taking the over on 59.5 Tulane at Memphis, and I think the other one was Arizona State at Utah, uh, Arizona State 13.5 point underdog. Do you like the Arizona State game more than any of those we just talked about? Yeah, it just seems like way too many points. And I, and I really like the uh, the Oklahoma minus the 33 as well. Uh, just I know that's a huge number, and usually I'm against laying that many points. But I don't think people understand how sort of helpless this West Virginia team is right now. Uh, so the, the the defense is not great. The running game is basically non-existent. They might be down to a second or third string quarterback. It, and Oklahoma has this team's number to begin with. So lay the giant points. 
uh, there with Oklahoma and then take Arizona State to catch two touchdowns. Uh, those are two of my favorite picks of the week, yeah. I'm going to be back with you, sir, Chase, on Sunday morning, wrapping up week eight. You guys don't have succession on anymore, so there's an extra hour of your week available. Give us a piece of that. Chase, is succession the best show on TV right now? Right now, yeah. I don't know what could be better. I mean, it's it's succession. and it, What do you think's better than succession right now? Like, what's, that, I, don't, I don't know if there anything is. And I, I, I know that you and I shouldn't I say better. About, I should say what's what's in the neighborhood, I guess. In terms of writing, I think... Barry? I see. I fell off at Barry after a couple episodes. I then again, I almost I fell off a of succession after a couple episodes. Came back in about a year later, and yes, it is the best show on TV. Uh, I think Mindhunter is phenomenal. I'm, I'm very curious. Better Call Saul has botched a lot of things, but I'm very curious where that goes to. But it's got to be the best show on TV right now. Yeah, I don't know what tops it. It's the best writing. Uh, Mrs. Maisel probably has similar writing. It's just witty as hell. Okay. That's it for the midweek episode of the High Motor Podcast. Thanks again to Brad Crawford for chatting, and thank you all to you for listening. Again, Chase and I will be back on Sunday wrapping up Week 8 and looking ahead to Week 9. Thanks for dropping by the High Motor Podcast. Oh.